will you please welcome a friend of us all, Mr. Heath Common. Cheers, Rev. And in response, let me say it's wonderful to be back. I'm really grateful to Rev and to the rest of you for inviting me back. I'm from Normanton, as most of you know. So it's always great. I'm from Arrogate now, but it's great to come back here to this community. And so many of you have been kind enough tonight to come across and talk to me about various things. Some of you have been so kind as to say you've seen me on occasions supporting the Pogues. Uh, two or three of you saw me at Leeds University. I won't go on because we're not here to talk about that. But let's talk about this. Richard and I have worked in a number of locations. Last time we worked together was in Manchester, where I do the interviewing about this magnificent book. That's not a sale job. That is a statement of truth. It's a tremendous book, and I know Richard's hoping to shift some of these tonight. They're on that table over there. After the raffle, yeah, after the raffle. But it's a great book. As I say, we talked this evening, Richard as an authority on the Pogues, that's beyond question. Myself having toured with the Pogues extensively, Europe, Scandinavia here, I know who's bothered. Well, I just like to think I know something about what I'm talking about as we discuss tonight the main issue of the night, which is the fantastic album rum sodomy and the lash that's why we're here specifically to talk about that album to, to celebrate why it's such a wonderful work of art so richard said to me a moment ago uh, what sort of audience is this i said the great people the great people rev's a great guy that's not what you said uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey He's messing already. He, he don't know what he's messing with. Listen, let me tell you, you're Norwich, I'm Normanton. You want a mess? No problem. And I would never, ever wish to embarrass my mate Dean, but Dean, it's great to see you, mate. It's getting looking so good. God bless you. And because he said, <clears throat> Charlie boy... Uh, what they're like. I think we should ought to reassure him by starting the whole thing by saying, you're very welcome, we're going to applaud you. Let's do it. <laughs> so, Rich, let me start by asking you this. 1985, Rum, Sodomy and the Lash comes out. As I recall, Spandau Ballet and the whole New Romantics were slowly disappearing, we've got this thing called post-punk, but out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, the Pogues arrive. What's your assessment of what was going off in 1985 as this album was released? You're assuming that I was alive in 1985? <laughs> OK, I was. Um, so, what was happening? Uh, the, the Pogues were, I suppose... They came out in 82, basically, is when they started to perform live. That was They were playing around clubs in London, like the Pinder of Wakefield and King's Cross and places like that. And um, and really, by that kind of time in the early 80s, it was uh, you could have been forgiven for thinking that punk had never happened, really. Yeah. I mean, looking around at the sort of stuff that was, that was in the charts. I mean, Top of the Pops went from that kind of um, late 70s, um, you know, 
know, they had, a, they had that people standing around the stage. That was the, the way it was. And then in the 80s, Top of the Pops suddenly became a kind of, um, you know, balloons and, and, uh, and people in rah-rah skirts, uh, you know, and, and all this business. And they, they tried to make it look like a nightclub. So the whole, you know, the whole of Britain was changing. The Top of the Pops studio was, was, um, was changing. And the Pogues... You know, were were an anathema really to to all of that. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, nobody was playing Irish music at all. Nobody was playing uh, banjos or uh, accordions or any of the things. Or uh, very few people were smashing beer trays off their heads uh, to to the to the beat of the music, which 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 Spider Stacy was obviously doing in the Pogues. And um, I think the only uh, the only thing you could even remotely compare. To that was would have been Dexys Midnight Runners because in '82 they had sort of reinvented themselves with Two Rye, and they they were I mean Kevin Rowland was second generation um, Irish same as um, same as Shane was his, his family were from Ireland but he'd been brought up in in, in the UK and um, you know he was very in, I mean Rowland was very influenced by Irish literature um, obviously people didn't know the you know the lyrics and some of the early stuff. You've got a lot of Irish literary references in there, very similar to, to the Pogues. So I think the Pogues were kind of buoyed by that. I think they took um, some some encouragement, in a way, from mm. the fact that Dexys were doing effectively roots music uh, at a time when um, nothing was nothing like that was going on in mainstream in the mainstream charts. And because we have a system, uh, a, a sort of culture in Britain, where uh, everything has to swim around in the same pool. I mean, in America, you have, you know, uh, you have country stations, route stations, college radio, and all the rest of it, and you have separate charts. In Britain, it was just like top of the pops. You have one chart, so all this stuff has to swim around in the same in the same environment, really. And um, so the Pogues playing old sort of, well, in some cases, kind of old Republican songs. Mm. Um, you know, effectively, sort of IRA uh, songs. Um, you know, in the in the in the 80s, they were actually on tour uh, with Elvis Costello in in October 84, when the Brighton bomb uh, went off, and nearly obviously nearly took out uh, Margaret Thatcher and half the cabinet. Um, so they were actually on the road at that time, and I think they might have even been nicked at, at some point in the in the days after that, just on the basis that they were, you know, there were so many Irish people being rounded up. Um, so you know the Pogues came along into an environment that was just not really cut out at all for uh, for that kind of music. Um, you know, did, did it look like there was an audience for the, you know what what was heard on Rum Sod and the Lash? No, definitely not. Mm, mm. You know, so the only music I would have ever come across as a, as a teenager growing up um, at that time would have been you know like Dexys would have been the the, the closest. So they were, they were like something from another planet, really. Right. Well, there's two things you say there, Rich, which caused me to pick you up. Um, number one, not to challenge you, but hoping that you'll develop. Number one, you talk about spiders smashing the tray on his head. And I'm conscious of the fact that he's smashing the tray on his head whilst in the same band you've got somebody as accomplished musically as Terry, Terry Woods, Phil Chevron was a very, very highly accomplished musician. 
What's your reflection on the dynamics in the pose, at that musically, at that time? This mixture of the incompetent, because you could never call Spider-Stacy anything more than incompetent. I mean, he was a notorious Millwall supporter, as we both know, yeah, you know, yeah. a Millwall thug. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Millwall football team are quite incompetent, really, as well. <laughs> um, although, actually, to be fair, I'm a Norwich fan, so I really shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't be saying anything about anyone being incompetent yeah. at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the first time I ever saw the Pogues, in fact, I suppose where, first of all, I mean, I, I went to live in Dublin in 1990, uh, and I, li I lived there as a journalist for uh, nine years, working on the, on the national papers there. And looking back, I, I, it might have, you could even say that it was the Pogues that, that might have actually led me to do that, because I, I didn't have any Irish family. And when I moved to Ireland, people kept saying, have you, have you, have you any Irish family? And I was like, no. You know, nobody. I don't, I, in fact, I moved here not even knowing anybody at all. And I think a lot of that was because I'd been on holiday a couple of times, um, but also I listened to a lot of Irish music, you know, a lot of Irish bands. Uh, so with things like that, Petrol Emotion and Something Happens, uh, The Pogues, Van Morrison, all sorts of all sorts of great stuff. The Waterboys were doing a lot of stuff over there. And um, so that probably was, in a way, what, what partly led me to, to actually go and live, live in the country. Um, so I think, you know, that, that, was, that was influential, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's it now, yeah. We're, we're, we're done, we're done here. Yeah, I think... Um, it was it was a it was just a very it was just a very very different time, um, and I'm not I'm not sure that 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 everyone was really ready for for the Pogues. Right. Uh, certainly in Ireland, uh, the the Irish Irish audiences and Irish TV stations were actually really against them. Right. Uh, and the, and when they first went to RTE and and played live on Irish television, they they were you know they had a really bad reaction to them. Correct. So um, it was. It was never easy for them. Right. The second thing you mentioned was Elvis Costello. Them touring with Costello. It, what was it? Eighty four, eighty five. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, a lot of people who were into the Pogue say that Costello ruined Rum Sodomy and the Lash. But I know, with you and I having spoken previously about this, that we think he had much more of a positive influence. Costello, if you don't know, I'll tell you, was chasing Cott, the bass player at the time. In fact, I, he married her eventually. Mm, mm, but there's this yes. controversial question about the influence that Elvis had on the album. What's your own reflection, Richard? Well, I mean, Costello had a, a, a really uh, massively influential, uh, a, a massive influence over them because if... if in a way, it was it was Elvis Costello um, getting them on tour uh, in '84. That was October '84. That that time at the end of that year, um, that that broke them really initially. I mean, obviously they weren't uh, mainstream at that point. So the first album, Red Roses, for me, and that was the first time I, I, I ever saw them. I walked into the uh, the lower common room at uh, University of East Anglia in Norwich, and uh, and I just I mean I was a huge Costello fan. Walked in, never heard of the Pogues in my life. Didn't I? Just looked at the stage. And just thought, what the fuck is this? You know, I've got no reference points for this. These these people playing, they're all pissed out of the head. Shane was absolutely off his tree. 
sitting there by the drum kit, staggering about on the stage, Spider St- Stacy smashing beer trays off his head. Cot was like, you know, looked, looked like she just wanted to fight everybody. Um, and, and you know, it, it, but it was just that kind of raw power. Um, but, but, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, you know, uh, Stiff were obviously the ideal record label for them because yeah. Stiff had this kind of um, reputation for being kind of alchemists in in the most impossible situations. I mean, you know, you know they they even made Elvis Costello look cool. Yeah, and you know, and they, they it looked like basically if no one else could do anything with somebody, then Stiff could market them. They could just market anything. Um, so I don't think that many record labels would have been able to do anything with the Pogues. But I think Costello taking them out on the road because obviously he wanted to get into Cot's pants. Basically, was what we're, what we're talking about here. So he had an ulterior motive. And then he ended up doing the album. And Costello was pretty choosy about who he pr- produced. I mean, he produced the Special's first album, which is a remarkable record, very raw, same as, uh, same as the Pogues. Mm. He did a few Squeeze albums, but generally speaking, he hadn't, by, by 85, Costello hadn't really uh, produced many records at all. And um, the danger with bands like the Pogues is people try to sort of polish it up. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's all fine, and you know, but actually, it needs a bit of finessing and stuff. And of course, that's exactly what it doesn't need. You know, it doesn't need finessing. It just needs somebody to try to um, capture yes. that, that incredible yes. intensity, which is a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> absolutely. And I think, to be fair to Costello, I think he, he did that with with Run, Run I would Sully agree, Minaj. absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a good statement to make. And let's look at the reputation of Shane as a songwriter at this stage, and perhaps even subsequently. I mean, let's face it, I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about here. Some people think Shane's just a drunk who is unable to produce anything, even at this stage, 1985. And others, perhaps like you, certainly me, would regard him as something of a genius. In 1985, he was writing incredible stuff, stuff that still lives with me today in the modern age. What's your own assessment, Richard, about Shane McGowan as a songwriter at this stage of this album being released? I mean, um, by this stage, he hadn't, he hadn't, uh, he didn't have that reputation as a songwriter. He had a reputation for being, you know, pissed up and, 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 and you know, chaotic um, and, and just something on stage that was like nothing, you know, no, nothing really that anyone had really seen before. Uh, they, they, I mean, I saw the Pogues. I was uh, saying to someone just just before we came on that, um, yeah, I feel really lucky to have seen them in '84, '86, and '88 um, at different points. At you know, on that sort of trajectory, um, and I think probably the best one of those three was when I saw them pretty much doing Rubber Sodomy in their last um, album um, at Hammersmith Palais in, in 1986. Um, you know, I mean, I was too young. Uh, to, well, I'm very young, obviously, we can see that. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I was too young to have seen the Pistols or the Clash and missed out on all that. But I think, you know, that I felt at the time and since that that's probably the closest I would have come to experiencing what it would have been like to have seen the Pistols or the Clash or, the, you know, in, at the time in, in, in London. Um, so it, it just, they, they had something incredibly special going on then. Uh, and, yeah, I mean... It, it, it wasn't that Shane was trying to reinvent Irish music. He wasn't trying to um, say that his version of Irish music was was better. In fact, you know, his 
the songwriting that he was that he was producing at that time was which was really prolific yeah. but it was all it, it all had its roots in old Ireland you know that's I think that's one of the reasons that I love the Pogue so much and and I think that's something that's really important about his songwriting is he wasn't writing about the Dublin of the nine of the eighties where everyone was leaving to go to America and coming to the UK for work people were literally flooding out of Ireland in the, in that yeah. time. He wasn't writing about that. He was writing about the uh, the Ireland of the 1950s and 1960s. That's a good statement. Of of rural Ireland yes. and old values, and that that's what Shane is. You know, he he's basically old the old values of yeah, Ireland, yeah. which is you know being uh, good to your family, being kind to people, um, you know, caring caring about your community, uh, r- rural life very very important. Um, you know, uh, so. You know that, and that's that's what that's what um, came through in those songs. And also, like Shane never cared about being cool. I mean, you know, you, you know, you don't have to study him for very long to know that. And I think something like um, a pair of brown eyes, which I think probably outside of um, Fairy Tale of New York, is probably his best song for yeah. me, yeah, yeah, yeah. because he writes in that about you've got all these references in there about you know you got. I mean, who who would have who in 1984 would have been writing a song about Ray Lineham and Phil, Philomena Begley? Yes. You know, my, my elusive dreams. Um, you know, he, the, all of, all of the influence of the on this record came from old Ireland and those old Irish country singers. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you this. As you know, and I'll share it with people in the room. In 1985, I was writing for Melody Maker. I'm sure many of you are old enough to remember that You're paper, that old, which has now disappeared. Yeah, net less of that. But let me tell you this. As you know. Frank Murray, the manager of the Pogues, hired HMS Belfast on the Thames for the launch of this album. And at that time, and I can only speak about that time, the Melody Maker crew, I was a Northern correspondent, but the Melody Maker crew was predominantly public schoolboys who'd existed on smoking dope. That was their drug of choice, so to speak. Well, they got on this HMS Belfast and Adam Sweeting the sub-editor, um, fell into the Thames and had to be rescued. <laughs> and the reason I'm asking this and telling that anecdote is that at that stage, everybody seemed to be wanting to be Irish. You know, on St. Patrick's Day, I'm sure you all know this, you go around Leeds on, on St. Patrick's Day and you think, where have you pseudo-Irish people come from? You know, what? Where have you come from? What's it all about? What's your reflections on that? What do you mean? You know, people pretended to be Irish and this whole Irish phenomenon that seemed to come up, this obsession with alcohol even, that seemed to come up with the pose and the release of this album. Well, we'll, we'll come on to my own obsession with alcohol in a minute. But, <laughs> but, um, but the, the thing about the, uh, the, the... Yeah, I mean, I think the Pogues, because they did make it cool... And, and then you had Sinead O'Connor sometime after that, and and you know, the, the, and, and you too, obviously, and all you know. There's been lots and lots of really, really cool Irish acts that have um, that have literally just you know crossed crossed all the all the different boundaries. And I think um, it did become really cool. And and I think in the mid '80s, uh, that that was something um, that was it, it had something edgy about it. Possibly because of the politics of what was going on. I mean, the IRA were, camp, were obviously doing a, a sort of carrying out um, bombing campaigns on on the mainland, and um, you know there was there was something 
there was something edgy about some of the Irish acts, um, particularly the, the 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 Pogues. I think they did have they did have an edge to them because they were. Um, it was very controversial. I mean, you know, you sort of listen to these things now, like Paddy on the Railway on the first album, things like that. And you think, oh yeah, it's nice. You know, they're doing these nice old Irish songs. I mean, these are Republican songs, mm. and to be and to be performing them in. In, in clubs in in Soho and 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 the UK was 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 you know ballsy you know yeah absolutely so um, yeah I think uh, you know was it really I mean was it I don't know were, were more people trying to be Irish or uh, you know plastic paddies if you want in in the in the mid eighties possibly but I mean I think there's always been a bit of that yeah. um, you know I had a you know, I once had an Irish wolfhound. You know, you, yeah. get, you, you get that. <laughs> you get that a lot. Um, you get you had that with the Irish football team. I mean, we all know. You know, when I lived there, lived there for a long time. But you know, the the Irish. You hear about the stories about Irish footballers in the World Cup or whatever, and one guy goes to the other one. You know, after the Irish national anthem is played, he says, "God, I hope ours isn't that long." <laughs> Because, yeah. because you know, like people like Tony Cascarino. I mean, it, uh, I flew over Ireland once. You know, you're on form so, tonight. Wow, well, yeah. it's only for you. It's just all for yeah, you. Man. It's only because you fell over. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was, yeah, it was. It wasn't. I don't know whether it was particularly cool, but but definitely, yeah. I mean, the Pogues, I think, made it more, yeah, more yeah. so. Um, and yes, I mean, this country, I, I think, to this day has a very unhealthy uh, relationship with uh, with alcohol. Yeah. Um, when you go to other countries, I think you, that's when I notice it more than more. When you when you go to other places, that you know, we just have a we just have to drink to be absolutely annihilated. You know, it's not enough to just enjoy a drink. It's got to be we have to get absolutely hammered. And um, I mean, the Irish have that. I mean, you know. Uh, as well, but it's um, it's it's a little bit different. It's the same without the violence, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, let's get off the subject of the Irish and alcohol, because no, seriously, because another strong element of this album is what I perceive to be, and I'm not asking you to agree, is Shane's obsession and love. I mean, obsession as an affection, his love of the city of London. You know, and his absolute admiration for everything that he's discovered there whilst living in that great city. Do you perceive major elements of his love for El for London in this album? Definitely. I mean, and it's really interesting uh, that, that that question because um, when I was writing the book, I mean, one of the things that, that is you know the, the sort of driving force in the book really was that Shane's obsession with being Irish. I mean, uh, you know, this was somebody he was born in. I mean, he's told people for, for years, "I was born in Ireland." I mean, you had the BBC documentary, which with the Great Hunger, which starts with the line, "He was born on the banks of the River Shannon," yes. not in Kent. Then, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know, he wasn't born on the banks of anything. He was born in in Pembury Hospital. Uh, in in 1957 on Christmas Day, which is probably where the Messiah complex comes from, and um, you know, and and you know, so he 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 was born in Britain. He he grew up in in England. Again, he's told everyone for years so much. He's told this story so much that everyone believes it, including even his best friends. And and in fact, they probably don't even believe the book, but they probably think the book's a load of rubbish. But he's told people he spent the first six years of his life in Ireland. He didn't. He spent uh, the first... Well, I mean, he didn't live in Ireland until probably the 90s. Yeah. 
Um, so he spent his entire um, childhood in England. He went to the poshest schools that you could actually imagine. He went to uh, a very, very uh, posh um, primary school or a sort of infant school um, uh, in, and uh, Homewood House. Uh-huh. And then he went to uh, Westminster School. Yes. Um, I mean, the other the sort of musical um, luminaries that have passed through the gates of, of Westminster are people like, you know, um, oh, I don't know, um, what's she called? Dido, you know, Mika. Yeah, yeah? yeah, you, get, yeah. You, get the, you get the picture, yeah? And Louis, Louis III went there, so it's really, like, diverse, as you can see. <laughs> um, and, sh- and I think 17 prime ministers went there. So, you know, like, Shane's whole thing about, oh, yeah, well, you know... Uh, edgy Irishman and everything, you know, it, was, it wasn't much edgy about him in, in, when he was 14 and at, at, at Westminster School. But having said all of that, and despite his, his obsession with coming from an Irish family and, and you know, everything that... He, his whole identity eventually became Irish. And, that's, and he wanted not only to become an Irish person, but he wanted to become a kind of uber-Irish, which is where the whole, you know, uh, made-up elements where he went around telling everyone he was born in Ireland because he wanted to be, you know, as Irish as, as, as actually as possible. Yes. Um, but when it came to the songwriting, really interestingly, it's actually London that comes out, you know, dark streets of London, um, up the old main drag, um, Sally McLennan, Transmetropolitan, London, You're a Lady, etc., etc. Right? The list goes on and on and on. I, I, I wish I wish a magazine or a newspaper would do Shane's London. You yeah. could have a, a, an amazing map because um, he, That's you know, he talks because he talks about King's Cross, the Dorling Road, in Hammersmith. If you go through all the lyrics, this is like literally laced. You know, they're just shot through with London references. So, despite all of that. Um, uh, sort of preoccupation with with Ireland and politics and and the IRA and everything. It's London that that, that fires his imagination in, in his lyrics. That's a great statement. Yeah, that's right. Let's just think about this whole truth and bullshit axis. There are s- some songs on the album, the main drag, for example, where he's definitely telling the truth. But for years, we never really got to the truth. In Up the Main Drag, he talks... And I wouldn't ask this, were we not focusing on this album tonight? He almost boasts about having worked as a male prostitute in Soho. Now, for years, to me, Shane talking to me, and if I've understood correctly, often talking to you, he said, no, that's never the case. I was just making it up. It's just there for effect. And yet... In the last few years, it's emerged that Shane was telling the truth. He did work as a male prostitute in Soho. Do you want to develop that point still further, Rich, if you don't mind? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the, it, because of the because of the nature of the, I mean, it's an incredible song, obviously, as yeah. as, as we all know, and and you know, a, a quick one off the wrist for a fiver, and it's talking about people puking up in doorways. And, and, and actually, I lived in London in 87, 88, 89, and, and, and actually I kind of, that really resonated with me, that yes. you know, lots of people sleep in doorways and lots of homeless people around and sometimes violence against um, you know, those kind of marginalised groups. Um, and I, I really remembered that. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, Shane, when he was interviewed, by, like Lynn Barber asked him about it and lots of, lots of journalists, when they came calling, asked him 
was this written out of personal experience? And Shane always kind of said no. Yes. And um, But then in the Crock of Gold film, which was produced by Johnny Depp, which some of, some of you may have seen, has been on BBC Four, I think. Um, uh, he, he, he wasn't actually kind of asked necessarily, but Victoria, Shane's wife, kind of just basically drops him in it because Depp says something about, oh, I can't believe that, you know, people could do that or something. And Victoria goes, well, Shane did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Shane's like, you know, Shane just goes, oh, yeah, it was, more, you know, it was just, just hand jobs. It was a job in hand. Yeah. And, there, and there you go. So, you know, after all, after years and years, decades of kind of denying it, there he is in a film. He probably didn't realise the camera was on in the same way that he didn't realise that I have actually interviewed him at all. <laughs> Don't tell him. Um, you know, he just think, yeah, he's actually coughed to it right yeah, there and then. Yeah. And I kind of knew that. I think I said to you before, and I knew that he had been involved in prostitution because people had said to me that confidentially he had told them this. So I knew it was true, but I, you know, I didn't have it enough to maybe say it as a statement of fact so when the crocodile film it came out that he that he had um but it but it shouldn't surprise us i mean that that that's that's the you look at the lyrics of that you know we, we shouldn't be surprised it was written out of personal experience yes i agree so let's establish then you said to you and i and so many other people you know i'm a member of the ira and all we don't have to go through all that a lot of what he says is bull <laughs> But if we're looking at this album, there's a surprising number of truthful statements in it which flavour the whole lyrical value of the album, don't they? But as we move on towards the interval, uh, past State, let me, let me just move away from the album, if you don't mind, while well, I've got this opportunity to I talk mind. to you. No, mind. no, because you have had the opportunity recently, fairly recently, to talk to Shane at length. And... I'm sure we're all concerned with this great songwriter that he is. Quite what's happening with him. I said to you earlier today when we came back together earlier today, I, I mean, a, a great friend of mine was Marquis Smith. And Marquis Smith of the Fall, the number of times I've felt, there's no way you're coming back from this. There's no chance that you'll come back from being this pissed, this stoned on stage and this out of control. And every time I thought that, he did. And there have been times during my work with the Pogues when I've thought, there's no way you're coming back from this. A night in Oslo, which I've shared with you, when he got uh, a bottle of sake, was completely out of his head. Some of you said tonight, I saw you at Leeds University with the Pogues. Well, if you remember that night, he <laughs> broke with some bottles on the stage. Do you remember these songs? And was walking around the stage in his bare feet, standing on bare glass, oh. and there was blood. I don't want to embarrass you, but there was blood shooting out of his teeth, out of his feet. I thought, there's no way you're coming back from this. So what's your question? Is he ever going to come back? I mean, I mean, in terms of uh, his long longevity, um, I mean, Shane would survive a nuclear winter. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, if if there's like an apocalypse and we all die, Shane will be crawling around on his hands and knees through our bodies, going, "Where's the nearest pub?" Right. That, so he'll survive, and probably. I mean, he's already outlived 
most musicians that he's ever had anything to do with. Kirsty McColl, Joe Strummer, you know, la, 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 yeah, hundreds of people, and he's still he's still here. Um, will he do another record uh, and and come back? No, I don't I don't think so because um, I'm not sure. I mean, he hasn't walked since 2015. I don't know yeah. if people, you know, are sort of up to speed with that. Um, he, uh, if you saw the pictures of his wedding, when was that? 2018, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. In 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 uh, Dublin, uh, Copenhagen, no, Copenhagen Town Hall. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. Well, what um, with Johnny Depp there? You mean? He was there. Yeah, yeah. he was there. And uh, let's not go there tonight. <laughs> um, he. So, you know that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think... I mean, he has written some stuff, we're told, and we know that he's been in a studio in Dublin, and he has recorded some stuff with Cronin, who are friends of his, and a couple of musicians. Um, you know, for me, somebody said to me when I was interviewing um, his publisher, Lee, um, who ha I think he just totally nailed this. He, he kind of said that if, if something was to be done with Shane in terms of a, a record, a new record... Yeah. Um, it would happen to be something like Rick Rubin did with Johnny Cash. Right. And I was kind of thinking, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah. you know, Johnny Cash's voice at that point, and, John, and I mean, obviously he was quite frail and he, he wasn't well. His voice was, wasn't what it was. But actually, Rick Rubin, being a very experienced and amazing producer, very much so. made a virtue out of the fact that his... his his voice was a kind of crumbling edifice. You know, he made a virtue of that. Yeah. So Shane, not in the best shape. You know, maybe somebody, you know, with the right producer and with the right, you know, things thrown in there, maybe something could happen. But I, having spent a lot of time around Shane, I mean, he, you know, he's not really that motivated, I don't think. I mean, I've yeah. spent, you know, time staying there, um, you know, spent a lot of time around him, looking after him and stuff as well at times. And, and you know, uh, I, I can't see it. No. And it's, a, it's a real sad thing because he's, he's only 64. Yeah, that's a sad reflection. I appreciate it. Well, that gives us a hope, an appropriate context to listen to this album in a moment when you've all had the opportunity to get some drinks in. But can I ask you to show your appreciation of the great Richard Balls tonight? <laughs> So we're going to have question and answers. Anybody got a question? We're desperate for one. Yes, please. Yeah. I mean, lo lo obviously, London is threaded through the album, but um, I'm not sure we've touched that much on the uh, the Irish community in London, which is very close-knit, but also you've got um, Irish going back and forth from London to Ireland, doing work, you know, seasonal work, and then some staying, etc. And that seems to be... Something that uh, Shane was in, obviously uh, part of in in uh, his formative years. Yeah, I mean, um, and in, in in a way, that's where he got his identity from, um, from going back to the Commons. So the the place that um, was the kind of family homestead was the, a place called the Commons, which which I have been in, um, and I mean, I don't. Well, I don't know what its future is going to be, but it should be used as a museum, really. I mean, it's if you walk in there, it's 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 completely dilapidated. I mean, you know, it's hundreds, several hundred years old, and it, and it could be a kind of easily kind of museum of rural life at the very least. Um, 
and 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 if 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 not, you know, a kind of museum to Shane McGowan in the future and the Pogues. It's an incredible place, and this is the place that he um, was taken to uh, for his holidays um, when he was when he was living in in England. So they'd they'd, they'd basically go in the car to Hollyhead. Um, they'd, they'd get on the ferry. They'd go to see uh, Morris's. So that's that's um, and one of my favourite people on God's Earth is Morris McGowan. He he is just an incredible man. Was absolutely great guy. His his he was from Dublin, and Shane's mother um, Teresa was from Tipperary. So they'd stop off and see Morris's family in Dublin, and then they'd go down to um, you know down to Tipperary to this to this place where. Uh, his aunts and uncles and all the, all the family was, were, you know, basically sort of still living. And, um, you know, there'd be, like, dancing at the crossroads in the middle of the night. There'd be, like, people, you know, in that classic Irish way, in that kind of rural community, people would come to the houses, open open house, and people would play and sing, and everyone would take their turn. And that was the thing about, you know, Shane, probably the first time he performed was... Uh, when he was three, standing on the kitchen table in the in the commons, performing in front of his aunts and uncles and his cousins and everybody else, um, and this this was this was basically what fired Shane's imagination. This is this is where the Pogues. This is why the Pogues was formed, basically because Shane was taken to to this place, uh, which was very you know ju- it just fired his imagination. Um, and the thing about Shane is that he romanticizes everything. <laughs> I mean, Victoria, um, Shane's wife, um, when I interviewed her, told said, you know, that he literally rom- rom- he romanticizes her, he romanticizes Ireland, he romanticizes his friends, you know, even you know people that he meets. So that that's that's a, a sort of key component of who Shane McGowan is. I mean, I, I don't profess to know who he is ultimately because he's a sort of psychologist field day. But I mean, but but certainly it's true that he, um, you know, a key part of who Shane McGowan is 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 that person. Um, uh, he's a romantic. He's a humanitarian, um, and a lot of that just came from, and, and a lot of a lot of. Um, I think one of the things that the Pogues um, did, probably their their most lasting legacy in a sense, um, was that they they spoke to that sense of. Um, you know, uh, sort of split uh, identity or, mm. or a conflict of identity. Because if you were Irish growing up in in Britain, um, you you weren't Irish because you weren't born in Ireland and you weren't being grown up. At, you weren't growing up in Ireland, but you weren't English because you were growing up in England in an Irish family, and um, with all the sort of discrimination and, and and the suspicion that went with that at that time. Um, you know, we'd like to think that that's changed dramatically now, but certainly in the 70s and at the time Shane was growing up in England, that it was a time of great suspicion. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, a key part of who Shane McGowan is uh, and was back then is is that that sort of um, seizing upon the commons and going back on those trips um, as, a, as a sort of identity, and he, he spoke to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, uh, that that is a such a such a good point because um, what Shane um, was was uh, committed to, uh, well, not committed actually. He he was treated at a psychiatric hospital, Bedlam Hospital, uh, Royal Royal Bethlehem Hospital, 
uh, when and he spent his 18th birthday on the wards there, and he was in he was in there for six months. I mean, you know, we're not talking about a few days or a few weeks, six months. Um, and this was a very sort of brutalistic sort of, you know, can you imagine, like, in a 19... What would this put him in? In the 70s, mid-70s, in, in a, in a, there were people being uh, getting ECT treatment. Uh, as I understand, I've been assured that Shane, Shane didn't receive ECT treatment, but he certainly would have been privy to people who were getting that. So, you know, it, 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 it's anyone's guess what, what he witnessed on, on the wards of that hospital. But when he came out, the first concert that he went to after walking out of this, you know, what must have been an incredibly traumatic experience, six months in a, a, a place like that, as an 18-year-old, he went to the, um, the 101ers, which is um, obviously Strummer's band, who were a pub rock band, and the support band who obviously Shane was there in time to see, was the Sex Pistols. So he looks up on stage and sees this, like, um, you know, red-haired lunatic. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was John Lydon. Uh, and, he's, and not only was, was he kind of transfixed by the, the vision of, you know, John Lydon singing and doing his thing, but obviously John Lydon was first-generation, sorry, second-generation Irish as well, and that that was was a sort of you know Damascene moment really yeah. for Shane, yeah. Any more questions? Can I give you can you give you a mic? You so otherwise recording won't pick up. <laughs> can you just pass that down? I was just gonna make the point that wasn't wasn't John Lydon also in he had meningitis and spent a, a long time in hospital. I'd forgotten that. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. So they, they had so much in common. So, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Shane, looking up, looking up at the, uh, from the floor of the... This is in the Nashville, um, an old pub in, in West London, which is on the pub rock circuit. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that... You know, we all have moments in our life when you think that was a kind of crossroads moment where we took a, a particular path, and um, that, that definitely was Shane's... Crossroads moment, yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? I've got a question. I, I don't know the answer to this actually, so um, so I'm not trying to be clever, but a, a lot of people won't probably won't know. Don't mention the Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> Where does the uh, the title of the album "Rum Sodomy and the Lash" come from? Winston Churchill. We've had it, yes. Yeah, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill. And, um, yeah, uh, I, I did. Re I, I think there was uh, there are there were sort of previous variations on that. Yeah. Um, Rum bum and backer. I read well, was jo one. George Melly just did. Uh, George Melly wrote a book, <laughs> didn't he? Rum bum and concertina. <laughs> yes, he, he wrote that yeah. in the early sixties. But yeah, it's from, you're right. It's Churchill, and they're all talking yeah. about the war, weren't they? And somebody said, "What about yeah, the navy?" Yeah. He said, "The navy, nothing but rum, sodomy, and the lash." Yeah. And I think uh, and the great thing about that was that um, Stiff Records, the, the, the book I wrote about um, before um, the uh, A Furious Devotion was that I wrote a book about Stiff Records, and um, which is how I came to interview uh, Shane for, for, for that and where all this madness um, started. And, uh, you know, Stiff, their, their, their big thing was marketing. You know, they, they almost kind of in, invented that kind of... Yeah. Um, 
guerrilla marketing that um, you know you, you saw much later, but they, they started it. Jake. And and as soon as they got you know a whiff of some sort of naval theme <laughs> themery, they were like they were on that like you know they were on it like a robber's dog, basically. <laughs> yeah, they were just like yeah right okay so we'll we'll, we'll hire HMS Belfast. We will, you know, which is how the guy, Adam Sweeting, ended up in the Thames. We will uh, dress the Pogues in Napoleonic gear. We will, you know, all these things. So they, their imaginations just went completely wild. And the great album cover. And, and, great, and, brilliant album cover. Yeah. So that was what Stiff really specialised in. And then again, so going back to what I was saying earlier, the, you know, the, the, po the Pogues ending up with Stiff was, was the perfect marriage because Stiff specialised in rather mad... Um, very visual, highly visual acts. Temple Tudor, Madness, Elvis Costello, you know, all these, all these bands. Uh, and they, they had a real vision for, for their acts. And they used to put in, you know, a lot of acts, now we all know that a lot of acts, if you end up on the wrong label, you end up in a massive label like Warner or something, you just get lost. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, amongst, the, beneath, beneath the bigger acts that they want to promote. But whereas Stiff, used to really put in the hours on, on their acts and and the Pogues really benefited from that. We, we had, uh, I'm sure of you, some of you, you attended, when we had Dave Robinson talking about Stiff Records and, and we were talking about it earlier and uh, he was telling some fantastic stories. Oh, amazing. I mean, you know, they, they literally, they could sell ice to the Eskimos. I mean, they, they literally just like, there was nothing. I mean, Elvis Costello, ah, you know, had been in Flip City, had been in and Rusty, and all these things. Like no hope, you know, absolutely. He looked like a sort of like geography teacher or something, didn't he? He looked like a supply teacher. <laughs> and they, somehow, Stiff kind of took on this person who, you know, I mean, basically, it was a kind of midnight at the Lost and Found for <laughs> music people that were like square pegs that nobody would touch in a million years you know i mean ian jury's new boots and panties which is you know now regarded as one of the most important records of that of that whole era i mean ian ian took that album everywhere you know and no one would give him house room i mean no one no one was in it was insane you know people would say oh, you're joking here we don't put no, no one's going to put this out and eventually they kind of his office just coincidentally his management happened to be upstairs in Notting Hill, in the same building, as stiff. And it was an act of n utter desperation. They just kind of went downstairs and went, no one's going to take this. This is literally hopeless, you know. So we're just going to, do you want it? And stiff were like, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll put it out. And, and, you know, then you had a record that was literally in the charts for months and months and yeah. months. Yeah. And another memorable cat club when we had Chaz Chankel of the oh. Blockheads here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? Chaz, Brilliant. yeah, lovely guy. Uh, Mr Smith has a, a question. Oh, cheers, man. Yeah, I just, um, I'd like to hear your take on the last track of the album, considering um, the Wandering Rover, Death and Blood, and Waltz and Matilda. You don't ask so much, do you? Um, you ought to have worked with him for the last six years. Yeah. <laughs> Am I right, Mark? <laughs> One of the things that um, I learned from uh, interviewing Shane's English teacher, which in a way 
I, I, I suppose it was almost the most important. I interviewed about sixty people for for, for for this book, which which ranged from you know friends, family, bandmates, label people, you know everybody, um, anyone who basically couldn't run away from me. <laughs> I think with the, the, that, that English teacher um, Tom Simpson, who who actually kept um, Shane's exercise books and s and the things that he'd written when he was literally eight or nine years old so i went to see this guy in his he was living somewhere near tombridge wells and he was about 90 when i went to see him and he's he's subsequently passed away and tom simpson had no way of knowing that shane was going to become famous absolutely no way nor did he keep any uh schoolwork of any other people it wasn't like he was just doing this as a kind of matter of course, like keeping this, these other children's work. So he saw something in Shane's writing that made him keep it. The reason I'm mentioning this, which you're probably wondering, what on earth am I going on about, is because um, I then uh, took home all of this stuff, you know, and, and I was felt incredibly privileged. Basically, I was like, in my bag, I had all this, you know, Shane McGowan's schoolwork, which I have subsequently passed back to Shane, so he, he now has all that as, as a result of it. Um, obviously after I sold loads of it on eBay. <laughs> but the, the stuff I couldn't sell, he's got. <laughs> and what, what was amazing in that was uh, reading those, those little... I mean, literally, they were like fragments of paper with, written in red felt-tip pen, aged eight and a half, you know. Uh, he was writing about war and death and destruction then and, and not because it was set as a topic by the teacher but that that's what Shane wrote about he wrote about and, and apparently he was like when he was growing up he was obsessed with the Black Panther movement in the States he was obsessed with Vietnam you know anything to do with he was I mean to this day he is he is like the he is such a historian I mean he knows everything about the First World War Second World War all the rest of it so you know no surprise that on Rum Sodomy and the Lash, he's writing about, uh, you know, he's writing you know, and, and singing about these things. Um, and, and the reason why I mentioned earlier um, um, the, 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 the single uh, Pair of Brown Eyes, sorry, searching for the title saying, um, you know, that, that song is, is, for me, sums up Shane. You know, it, it's got that sensitivity, it's got that romanticism, but it's also got all the, you know, it's, it's about war, it's about conflict, it's about death. And, you know, Shane is absolutely obsessed to this day with, with those subjects. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that um, is a wonderful song to, to end that album on. Okay, just had a nod from Rev. Unless anyone's got any more What's questions. Nope, oh, you go, Andrew. Don't let Rev. It's not, think, it's not about your, your wife setting fire to everything, yeah. is it? Yeah, fire starter. Right, she used to be in Prodigy. <laughs> yeah, Richard, just something you touched on earlier, what the sort of lack of acceptance in Ireland, maybe in the early days, which I'm assuming ultimately they did overcome. What, what do you think were the barriers to that? Were it like a decency issue or were it just a... They didn't buy into it. I think that the the fact that the Pogues were were not based in Ireland, they were based in England. So uh, some uh, a lot of people saw them as an English, and, and also you know it has to be said that the Pogues were not an Irish band. 
I mean, it really, at any, at any point in their career. I mean, when the Pogues started um, and you had Cot, uh, Shane, Spider, Gem, and all the others, not, not a single person in that first lineup, or effectively the first two albums, really, had, had been actually born in Ireland. Nobody. I mean, Cot was born in Nigeria, Shane was born in London, Andrew was from London. James Fernley's from like Stockport. Manchester, yeah. Yeah, uh, Jem Finer's from uh, Stoke, and so it goes on. So no, none of none of the Pogues um, in that first uh, incarnation were born in Ireland. So that I think played into the one of the suspicions that that, that, that Ireland itself had. The other thing to say is that because um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I lived in Dublin in the nineties. Well. Yeah, absolutely, and Phil Linnett and people who were actually from Ireland. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Phil Linnett, and I, I think um, Ireland was trying at that point as well to become a to put a more sophisticated uh, face to to the rest of Europe, and um, the, a lot of people who were living in Ireland at the time saw this as like you're kind of raking up. Some past that we're we're trying to get rid of this. We we don't want to become, you know, we 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 want to shed this image of being the the drunken paddies and the guy in the, they call them kind of paddy suits. You know, the, the mm -hmm. black, you know, that famous black suit. You see the guys um, standing around pubs in Cricklewood and 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 all that. Basically, you know, Ireland was was trying to get rid of that image. So the Pogues were almost like they almost sort of said, "Why are this lot from London? This this bunch of Herberts from London trying to re-import some sort of like you know faux uh, pissed up Irishness back into which we don't we don't we don't want we don't want it." You can see why they were embraced yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because I mean, obviously, like you were saying every, earlier about everyone wanting to be Irish. I mean, there's no place like that, like America, for absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, it's a really good question. Okay. Uh, I am going to end on a positive note, believe it or not. No. You know, I'm, you don't know I'm going to do this, but um, if you do buy this magnificent book, either tonight or from Waterson's or wherever you choose to buy it from, Amazon, who knows what, you'll see it's dedicated to Dave Lally. And Dave Lally was a very close friend of Richard and myself, Indeed, we're very close friends of the whole Lally Manchester Irish community. Now, where you are spiritually, any of you, is nothing to do with me, and I'm not interested. But personally, I know there's a lot of Catholics in the room. I'm not going any further with that, but I know there are. And I personally believe that Dave, right now, he died too early, far too early. He is looking down on us tonight listening to this and celebrating this celebration of the Pogues. He was a great friend, a very, I think he might have been Shane's closest friend, but let's not go into that. All I ask to conclude, Rev, is that if you do buy the book and you read it and you see that it's dedicated to Dave Lally, I'm not asking you to say a prayer, just have a thought, just think about him, because he was a brilliant bloke. God bless him, and thanks for listening to us tonight. Thank you.